Just a few highlights. Um, the Colton Vikings this last week. Friday Night Lights, they defeated their opponent 50 to 0. It was quite the game with all the wind and the rain. Gusts of wind up to 65 miles an hour. There was a porta potty that blew over. It just tipped down on that side. It was so gussy that night. We've got the men's retreat coming up. Yes. And if you want to go to the men's retreat, I want to know. I'm going to just tell you, just kind of lay it out there. We've got four rooms, six beds. Then there's a couch with a height bed. Then there's another futon with a bed. And then upstairs there's a couch. And then there's a little tiny couch. You don't have to sleep on that. And up there there's a loft. And there's all kinds of room on the floor. So um, I'm sure we'll just have eight people. But uh, we'll just kind of gather and come on out. You can come down anytime. Leave when you want. And on Friday night we've got our guest speaker, a keynote speaker coming from Portland, and uh, we'll have devotional and Bible times every day. We want to invite you to fellowship. Get out the vote. Tuesday is election day, and we need to pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for our state. Pray for our counties. Because who you put into office can make a difference. What I would pray for is that we vote and elect officials who stand for godliness, who stand for righteousness, who stand for truth, who put the Bible, God's word, before populace on issues of conscience and conviction and morality and law. Pray for our nation. We need prayer. You can find more announcements in the bulletin today. And we've got a dinner coming up. A community Thanksgiving dinner. If any of you are kind of on the fence, you don't know what you're going to do or where to go, come down to the fire station just to hang out from, from 11 to 2. The food is free and we can watch the Macy's Parade or a football game online, but it's more about the gathering of fellowship, being together with people, loving your neighbor. And we did it last year and I said, you know what, this is important, even if it's just a few. There are people out there that... Um, and we can love on and uh, bless in this ministry for Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we can't pray too much, can we? What a privilege. An open relationship with you, the God of the universe, who knows us and loves us, the God who cares. Your son, Jesus. Reflection of the Father. Gave his life for us. Lived on earth. Teaching. Performing miracles. Healing people of diseases. Casting out demons. He came setting an example for us. That we would follow in his steps. He told his disciples to go and do what you saw me do. It's only in his name and in his power and the power of God. We ask God that you would work in mighty ways, that you would convict us, that you would confront us, that you would move us to go and to do and to be your people, to be your mission to this world. Pray that this morning, God, you might even put somebody on our hearts, somebody that we can go and encourage, 
that they might know Jesus too, that they might see he is the answer. He's the reason. He's the hope. Regardless of what this life brings, whatever it dishes out, whether it's success or failure, whether it's trouble or suffering, persecution or pain, thank you, God. You are the answer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8 today, and while you turn there, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story I read this week because I think it is relevant for our time, and you can tell me later on if I was right or wrong. But it was November of 1930, and a Little boy, Ante Tony Maglica was born. His dad's name was Jerko. Don't know if I'd want that name. His mom's name was Tomikahad. Tomikahad. Jerko and Tomikahad Maglica, the couple had emigrated. They had come to New York City from Zlaren, a Mediterranean island, one mile off the coast of Croatia in the late 1920s. They came to America like many immigrants do to, to find a better life. But as the Great Depression raged on in the 30s, going into the 40s, some 6,000 people in the city of New York were out of work and on the streets desperately selling apples for a nickel apiece. When I read this story, I think of the rising cost of inflation. Wages can't keep up. Jerko himself was barely able to learn, earn a living, and so his wife decided to return to Zlaren with her toddler, Tony. Tamika had survived as a subsistence farmer on a meager plot of the family's land. But when World War II erupted, there was misery and famine encroached, and so desperate times called for desperate measures, and Tony recalled watching his mother and her twin sister, Nata, Depart Zlaren in a small rowboat fighting strong winds and risking their lives to get to the mainland of Croatia to trade any items of value they could scrape together for food. They would be gone for days at a time, leaving little Tony alone on the island. His mother left him with one can of flour and told him to make it last a week. And so he would mix it with water and turn it into this paste. Each day he would climb the roof of his home to look out and keep watch, waiting for his mom to return from the ocean to come back in the boat. When his mother finally returned, he was so excited because she brought back with him, with her, some beans. And so he, he, he says, I never grew tired of those beans. I love them today. Beans. Telling the story, young Tony was resourceful and creative, Michelle Malcolm writes in her book, Who Built That? Awe-inspiring awe stories of American tinkerpreneurs. Tony took apart clocks and he carved chess pieces out of wood and he built cradles and stone shelters for his family. Tamika had and her sister, meanwhile, they tore apart their homes looking for anything. They stripped bed sheets and emptied kitchens of plates and utensils and they rustled up 
religious artifacts and furniture all to go out and barter so they could have food. She even pulled out one of her own gold-filled teeth to trade for food. She taught Tony, her son, though, to work and study hard, to squander nothing, and to relish every opportunity. During the war, the war came through Europe, and Zarin was annexed and occupied first by the Italians, then by the Germans. Fear and death overtook the village. You can think, modern day, think of those facing the throes of war in the Ukraine and the Middle East and Afghanistan and, and these countries where there's still ongoing warfare. Those who joined the resistance were thrown into Italian concentration camps. Mass terror took the form of daily raids, deportations, and ethnic cleansing. Islanders were executed randomly. Tony would hide in the forest for hours at a time. And when Tony and his mothers and their friends and their neighbors were, one day they were rounded up by German soldiers wielding machine guns. They were lined up for execution, but it was on the part of a local priest who was able to talk the bloodthirsty occupiers out of a massacre. But another Croatian village, it wasn't so lucky. On one occasion, 40 inhabitants of Dalmatia were slaughtered by the Italians. On another occasion, 270 Croats were executed by the Germans in the village of Lipa. And in 1950, when the communists overtook Croatia, Tony decided and he was able to make it back to New York. Tony would go on. He was, a, on, he was creative and he was a thinker and he was resourceful and he put himself to work and he worked hard. And he was an inventor and he would later become the inventor of a world-famous product and the CEO of a $100 million-plus company, overseeing a 450,000-square-foot warehouse in New York where they would manufacture their goods. Made in America, Tony was the founder of Maglite, perhaps the best flashlights ever built. His story is not simply one of overcoming adversity, but, but in realizing opportunity in working hard and applying his energy to achieve success. And I share that this morning because it parses with that experience of what it was like back then and, and gives just one little example of what other people have suffered, what they faced, what they've confronted, what they have to live through and experience. And that was less than 100 years ago. Less than 100 years ago. And, and now, parlay that to what we're seeing today. The tension and the turbulence and the circumstances our world is facing similar to what they did back then. Think of little boy Tony when his mother Zlaren left him alone, when his mother left him alone on Zlaren Island. If you ask the question today, where are we headed as a nation or, or as a state of Oregon or as the world? Despite the wealth of information, the innovation, the, the breadth of knowledge, the world often presents itself kind of like a bullet train on a high-speed track racing toward disaster. The world's on a collision course. 
And as much as our lives, and many times they seem pleasant here in this place, in, in our state where we live, we're inspired with our goals and our dreams, with our committees, with our programs, with, with our teams, with our triumphs. Still in the background, there's something subtle, there's this undercurrent that, that reminds us every day that, that things are not right. Something's just not right in this world. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, there's the, the seven seals and the first four represent conquest and war, famine and inflation, plague and death. And we've seen those cycles occur over and over again. It says in Revelation 6, verse 6, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. I know that in that passage, olive oil, for example, was a staple in Jewish culture. But sometimes when I read, do not damage the oil and the wine, I can't help but thinking about the fuel, the petroleum that seems to run most of this planet. But these cycles, represented by the first four seals, wage on. And I just share all this to kind of set the pretext for what we're going to dive into, because Matthew chapter 8, onto the scene comes Jesus. And I want you and I, as I preach this message, as we look at the world, I want you to just imagine onto the scene coming Jesus into our world today and into our lives and into your situations, into our homes and giving us hope. Giving us hope. So this morning as you turn to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be looking at a simple message. What can we learn from the five people Jesus meets in Matthew chapter 8 verses 1? To 22, the five people Jesus meets, starting at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the man was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. But go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come. And he comes, I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He said to those following him, truly, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east, and from the west, and will take their places at the feet with Abraham, at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. 
He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on them, him. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. The word of the Lord. See, we get to Matthew chapter 8, and the five people that Jesus meets in this passage, at least the five that I identify, not the people with demons and all the sick. We don't know how many there were. But first there was this man with leprosy. And then there was the centurion with faith. Then there was a mother-in-law with a fever. Then there was a teacher of the law who was a creature of comfort. And then there was a disciple who was not yet ready to go. And at first glance, this passage might just appear to be a busy life, a busy day in the life of Jesus. Almost looks, flows together like it was a whole day in one and all these things going on. And, and maybe your life seems like that sometimes, the helter-skelter and the busyness and the people you're trying to minister and reach. But one of the fun facts of this passage, if you look at a harmony of the Gospels, that's where you line up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the stories that are included in different books that are similar, and then there's others who are, that are different, but you see the way that they're arranged. We find that Matthew is borrowing from a collection of experiences of things that Jesus said and did over a period of time, not in chronological order, and not in one day. So, for example, in this passage, the first 22 verses, this is how it's laid out that in Matthew 8, verses 2 through 4, we see the leper. Well, you'll find the leper in Mark 1, verse 40, and Luke 5, starting at verse 12. The centurion of Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13, shows up in Luke 7, but not in Mark, not in the Gospel of John. Peter's mother-in-law. She comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, but, but, but notice Mark places the mother-in-law before the leper. And in Luke, the same thing. The teacher and the disciple, we only find that episode in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. So Matthew takes these things. You know, why is this an interesting or important piece of information? Because Matthew's account in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8 is connected by themes. In the Gospel of Matthew, keep in mind that Matthew he wrote it, he was a follower of Jesus, and he wrote this book after the ascension of Christ. Jesus ascended roughly around 30 AD, give or take. And when you look at Matthew's writing, it's typically dated either in the late 50s or 60s or all the way to 85 AD. And it's going to be important because in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed and the Romans, they ransack Jerusalem. And so what, depending on whether Matthew was written 
before that or after that can affect your lens. But, but scholars are undecided about that fact. The point is, is Matthew is writing in themes and his focus, one of his focuses is Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is King. Jesus is King of the kingdom and his kingdom spans the whole world. So, either way, whether it's 25 or 50 years after Christ's ascension, the Gospel of Matthew was written. And imagine that if you wanted to write a letter or a book to someone telling them about someone else or about something or recording history and all the events, you might be selective in what you include and you might be purposeful in what you want to say. Matthew's very purposeful in how he lays out his gospel. Also keep in mind, though, that the gospel of Matthew is also a manual for discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, you want to learn about him, start at chapter 1. It talks about the genealogy, and then it goes to his birth. The introduction of John the Baptist, the visit of the Magi. Matthew then leads us into the wilderness where Jesus is tempted by the devil right after his baptism. Then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountainside where he sits down. He gives the greatest sermon ever told in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the manual of the, on discipleship. And then you hit Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. You look at that verse and it says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Matthew 5, the last time I spoke from this pulpit, Jesus went up the mountain. Matthew 8, Jesus comes down. In this passage, Jesus does not defy the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. But an observation from this passage could be this. There's a time for sitting and listening. But then there's another time for going and doing. There's a time where we sit down and listen. And in Matthew 5, Jesus went up on the mountainside. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He began to teach him. And there is a time where we need to sit down, shut up, and listen to what God has to say. Amen. That was the proper position for a respected teacher, you would sit down and people knew that that was the time to shut up and to listen. But then there's a time to get up and get going, get moving. Take what you've heard, apply it to your life, share it with others. Do what it says. We call that putting faith into practice. So what goes up must come down. Matthew chapter 8 verse 1, Jesus comes down the mountainside. Just kind of a tickler in here. What do you do with what you hear on Sunday morning, typically? Uh, do you take notes? Uh, do you insert them into your, you know, take them on the bulletin, insert them in your Bible, review them, review them during the week, or do you go home and start making lists? Okay, how can I apply this passage to my life this week? Do you ever take notes, write them down, go out and share them with others? And Pastor's Appreciation Month last month. That's one of the best compliments you can ever give to a pastor is going and doing what they teach from God's Word. I mean, that's actually a big, better compliment to God, too. Faith into action requires taking what we have learned and putting it into practice. And if all you do is show up on Sunday morning, 
sit down and listen and then leave, I might start to question whether you've really learned anything. Well, I guess it's kind of like a Chinese dinner. You know, it tastes really great at first when you're eating it, but then one burp or one toot and it's gone. We need to take God's word and, and apply it, put it into practice. And so Jesus comes down the mountain and we're going to see him not just with wonderful teaching, but we're going to see what he does with his life in action. The first person who comes up to Jesus is a leper. This is kind of cool. The, the leper comes up to Jesus. Here's the leper, the untouchable, the unlovable, the outcast, the unclean. The alienated, the isolated, the estranged. Leprosy was a physical condition that affected one's social position. Lepers were isolated, they were cast out, they were required to live outside the city because nobody wanted to be around them. I think of the early days of COVID-19, you know, stay safe, be six feet apart. That was effective. Um, you know, it's like in that phone call. Somebody, I don't feel good. I feel sick. I'm running a fever. Anybody want to take me to the hospital? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, the early days of COVID-19. Remember, remember when we all thought we were going to die? Yeah. We, we were, I'm not trying to be too dramatic here. But, you know, the point is, is the leper was the untouchable, the outcast. Uh, the unclean, when, to have leprosy would be a, could be a life sentence. You're, you're, you're exiled to Exile Island. Nobody can be around you. I had a situation for a few months here. I turn on the TV that I got this monitor and it's hooked up to Samsung. And so every time I turn it on, The Walking Dead would be on there. And I never, I never, read, I never watched The Walking Dead, but. You know what it was on as a series. I guess it's kind of the occult classic. There's a whole following. And you just walk, watch these guys and their flesh is hanging off of them. And it must have been a lot of fun to rehearse for those parts and get your cast to carry. Everybody has to practice the walking dead. Well, this is like the leper. He's, this guy's walking dead. I mean, if Jesus doesn't heal him, he's going to be perpetually stuck in that condition until he dies. Unless something changes. And, and there were different there were different types of conditions. Maybe sometimes some people recovered, but generally speaking, it was a life sentence. Leper comes up to Jesus, and what does the leper do? Well, what would you do? <laughs> First of all, I want to know what Jesus was doing in that area. He comes down the mountain and then the what do you do? Hey disciples, let's go into Leperville. I mean, okay, cool. This is so exciting that this is the first person who appears to Jesus. But the leper identifies Jesus as the one who can heal. How did he know that? How did he hear about that? Where did he get that idea? Something to think about here is you could be the one that tells somebody else about the idea that Jesus saves. People need to know where to find his healing. People avoided leprosy because nobody wanted it. What does the leper say? He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But what does it mean to be clean? 
What did the leper want? He wanted deliverance. He wanted to be healed. And look at what he is doing. Number one, he's kneeling before the master. A sign of reverence and humility. He bows down. When was the last time you kneeled before the master, Jesus, your, your savior, your Lord, your king? He acknowledges his dependence and Christ's sufficiency. He, he knows Jesus is the only way. Do you realize too, this was a fun fact. In the Gospel of Matthew, the leper is the first person who acknowledges Jesus as Lord. The leper is the first person who acknowledges Jesus. What does that mean? What would it mean to you to, to, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my master, he's the one I bow down to, he's the one I worship. Jesus is Lord, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Third, he surrenders himself to God's will. Somewhere God's will in that passage is titled, when, when the leper says, Lord, if you are willing, and, and if you'll read the Sermon on the Mount, Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He entrusts himself, he's, if you're willing, he's hoping Jesus is willing, but is he sure? But he surrenders, he submits himself, and then he's declaring that Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the cure. Here's another fun fact. At some point between Matthew 8 and 9, some scholars have drawn this parallel between the miracles Jesus performed in Matthew, remember he's grouping them by themes, and they would point out that in Exodus there were 10 miracles or the plagues of Egypt that God did to, to get Pharaoh's attention, but God allowed these plagues to also point to the fact that Moses was God's spokesman. Moses would lead the people out of Egypt. The God of our fathers, God of Moses, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that whole line and so in Matthew, Matthew groups together nine stories containing ten specific miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And some draw this parallel. Now Matthew is pointing that Jesus is God's spokesman, Jesus' authority, authenticating the message of which later on in the Gospel of John they would accuse him, John 10 verse 33, of claiming to be God. But Matthew, is, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is King, He's establishing His Kingdom, He is God's spokesperson to the world. The parallel of miracles. What does Jesus do though? Jesus reaches out and touches the man. Oh, we may not think of that as a huge deal, it's not a heavy lift, it's not a hard task, Jesus touches the leper. But according to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, Jesus' simple act of touching the leper himself would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. Jesus would have been, had to go outside the camp just for touching the man. Jesus wasn't bound though by that regulation. He's not daunted, he's, he's not worried about it. He's not, he's not even worried about contracting the disease. He fulfills the law of the prophets as he came to do, Matthew 5, 17. So he touches the untouchable, he loves the unlovable, and he says, I am willing be made clean. And the leper is. In this miracle, Jesus' power and Jesus' authority is unquestionable. There's no doubt about it. Jesus also, notice, he didn't say, well, at first let's stop and pray. Let me ask the Father. No. 
He had the power and authority to do that because of who he was. The Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God, the Son of Man. His word and touch alone would affect the cure. And we can go into a great deal about on what Jesus says next. He tells the leper, don't tell anyone. Just go show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift that Moses commanded. But if you look at that, the words that Jesus used when he says, offer the gift. Look at verse 4. Go show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The leper was clean. But here's what under Mosaic law would need to happen. In order for the leper to go back into society, for, for, for the leper to be pronounced cured, he, in Judaism, needed to go back to the priest to present himself, and they would give the stamp. You are clean. You can go back to your home, go back to your family. Who knows if he had a wife or kids or, or friends and, and relatives, he could go back. But this was to be a testimony to the priest. Now, why did Jesus tell the man not to say who did it, who he was? See that you don't tell anyone. <laughs> now, some would question, well, what's all the secrecy about Jesus? They'd say, well, it's because Jesus didn't want the fanfare, or it wasn't his time. Jesus wasn't doing this for human recognition, I don't think. He wasn't serving for applause. Sometimes we get concerned when it comes to ministry about what are people going to think? Are they going to look at me? Who's going to get the credit? No. He was doing it for God's glory. and That should be one of our principles whenever we serve. We don't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. When we serve, when we minister, when we sing, when we get up and speak, we want people to see God. We want them to know Jesus. It's not about human recognition. But it goes deeper than that with Jesus. It, personally, it was not Jesus' time to draw great publicity to his identity as Messiah and King. That's going to come later. I want you to realize when we read the Gospel of Matthew, we're re reading what Matthew wrote 25 to 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And now he's wanting this legacy to be passed on. This, this is the instruction manual. The discipleship book. Jesus was not running for public office. He wasn't in a popularity contest. And his coronation would not happen until it took place on the cross. This was not the time for them to try to exalt Jesus. They would do that later. His mission would be fully revealed at a later time. But for now, that was his effort to conceal his messianic identity. Don't tell anybody. But the guys still did. And I think God in his sovereignty foresaw that and foreknew that too. The reveal Jesus wanted someone to see was to be to the priest. Let the priest know as a testimony to them. And so he had the man comply with Mosaic law. Well, here's, here's one of the realities of our world and our condition. The, the leper had a skin condition, but each one of us has a sin condition. Each one of us needs to be cleansed. Jesus' touch can heal. Only Jesus saves. 
We can defend the person, the power, the identity, and the authority of Jesus with this one miracle. Matthew could have written just this one episode and said, here, you guys have enough to stand on. Now just believe in him. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't stop there. Now he goes to the centurion. He goes to the centurion. And if the, if the leper was the outcast, this guy is the opposite of that. This guy is the leader. And this guy, the centurion, he's not a Jew, he's not Jewish, he's a Gentile. He's on the other side. He's not only a Gentile, but he's a Roman. He's a Roman centurion, he's an occupier. He's not just an armed guard, he's a commander of tens and twenties. And we understand that the centurion, the word century means a hundred, and you could, we could assume that the centurion would be in charge of a hundred people, but scholars will tell us it might have been more like 60 to 80. But the point is, this man had a lot of authority. He's located, the scripture says, in Capernaum. It says here, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, and Capernaum was known as a Roman outpost. This is where your leaders would be, where they would rule. He was probably very intellectual, had a lot of authority, and was likely very wealthy. Wealthy, he had a servant, servant in his house. Normally, a Roman centurion would not be a popular person in Israel. These guys were the invaders, the occupiers. But in Luke 7, where we see this story of the centurion in stereo, Verse 3 tells us that it was actually some Jewish elders. They reached out to Jesus. They came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion and, quote, pleaded with him, earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So the centurion had Jewish friends. And sometimes sometimes occupiers you can build a, a, a relationship with and find mercy or favor even in the midst of conflict or, or war or occupation. Kill him with kindness. Well, the centurion being in charge of many, he would give orders and people would go and he gave commands and people would do and he was a man of authority. But this man of authority recognized the man of authority when he went to Jesus. And what did this man of authority who recognized the man, Jesus, do? He went to Jesus and he said, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. I really like what the Christian standard Bible says, that the man pleaded earnestly, pleaded with Jesus. And who is he pleading for? Not himself, but his servant. Almost like a ruler pleading with Jesus for his lowly slave. What does this tell us about the centurion? He's a man of mercy. He's a man of compassion that, that sometimes even in the midst of we see wickedness all around, some of the most unlikely people may surprise us by actually having a sense of goodness in their heart and sympathy toward others. The centurion had sympathy toward his servant, and what a surprise this would be to Matthew's audience. This was written to the Jewish people, primarily. They're reading this about this Roman centurion. What a testimony. Jesus says to the man, shall I go and heal? 
Shall I come to your place? <laughs> How would you feel if somebody asked if they would want me to come over to your house today? How many of us would say, well, not today? <laughs> no, um, the centurion says Lord, in verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, roof, but you just say the word and my servant will be healed. Why doesn't the servant want Jesus to go to his home? Now, this has been an issue that's perplexed me. Probably always perplexed me. Why didn't the, was it because the centurion didn't want Jesus to see his house? Maybe it was a messy house or something wasn't in order? Could it be because the centurion was sensitive to Jewish customs, just, just like touching the leper, for, for a Jewish person to go to a Gentile home um, would make them ceremonially unclean? See Acts chapter 10 verse 28. Or was it because of the centurion's faith? Uh, both Matthew and Luke highlight the centurion's sense of unworthiness. He says, Lord... I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve. By the way, the centurion is the second person in the Gospel of Matthew to refer to Jesus as Lord. The first is the leper, the outcast. The second one is the Gentile Roman occupier, Lord. Both Matthew and Luke highlight the centurion sense of unworthiness, and both Matthew and Luke accentuate the centurion's faith. And perhaps there's a greater power at play here that God knows about behind the scenes, and that's the power of God. See, back then, it was one thing for a miracle to happen in person, if Jesus went up and touched somebody and they were healed. But it was totally extraordinary, almost unthinkable, that something could happen from far away. Jesus knows what's going on here. The, Jesus says, shall I come to you? But the man says, I'm not worried. That I, where did they have you come into my home? There's a number of different answers and thoughts around this. Notice too that the centurion, he's not asking for prayer. <laughs> he's asking for healing. He's not saying, Jesus, would you pray for my servant? He says, I want him healed. What Jesus recognizes in verse 10 was the man's faith. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus gives a rousing hellfire and damnation sermon. He doesn't miss an opportunity here. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, by the way, Matthew's the only one that uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven. You can look into that later. He says, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context here, Roman centurion is a Gentile. He's a Roman. Jesus came primarily as the Messiah of the Jewish people and Matthew's proclaiming the Messiah, but he's extending now the kingdom. And he's saying this kingdom that the Messiah brings, it's going to go from the east to the west. It's going to encompass all nations. This gospel, this message of eternal life and hope will go to all peoples. And they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
teachers of the law kind of swore under that umbrella, almost like it was a covering and cloak of protection, but in name only, not in heart or deed. It says, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Who is he talking about? He's pointing his fingers at those who do not acknowledge him among his own people, his own nation, the nation of Israel. In this miracle, Jesus crosses a cultural boundary pointing toward more of what it is to come, that the Gentiles will also be part of the family of faith, the kingdom of God. And the term subjects of the kingdom is now a cryptic warning, speaking prophetically to the Jews, those who recognize Abraham as their father, but don't recognize Jesus as their Lord. The centurion recognized him as Lord. And the centurion says, just say the word. I believe. Can you do that? By the way, I, I, I just want to put a disclaimer here. Matthew 8 is not teaching a name it and claim it gospel. Matthew is telling us a historical account of what Jesus did for the centurion. And, and what, Matt, what, what he did to kind of the God's story of, of, of demonstrating, illustrating how Jesus is the Messiah. Does that mean we don't go to God with faith or with boldness? Or where we don't ask our petitions, our, our earnest requests? No. He wants us to come. Well, sometimes a better prayer, though, is if you're willing. And God, what is your will? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And realizing that, that total healing, total resolution won't be found until we get to the kingdom. We're going to suffer and struggle now. It doesn't mean that God won't work miracles. It doesn't mean that Jesus won't come in and touch our situations. But don't use a passage like this to, to present a name and claim a gospel and say, well, if you just had enough faith. It's not what Matthew's saying. He's giving us a historical account. Also, when Jesus healed, it was complete and it was instantaneous. Here's a third person. Peter's mother-in-law. I think God has a special place for mothers-in-law. Nobody's laughing. Okay. Maybe you. Are you mothers-in-law? No. Okay. If you went to Capernaum today, you would discover that in the late 1960s, the archaeological Archaeologists discovered what they believed to be the actual home of Peter. And, and Mark chapter 1 verse 29 would say that it was probably the home of Peter and Andrew. And quite possibly their parents lived there and their extended families. But in this case, definitely Peter's mother-in-law lived in the same house. So don't feel bad if you live in such a house where your parents have come back to live with you. And maybe you'll get a mother-in-law. So, you had a leper, you had a leader, now we're at the home of Peter, and here's what's unique about this. This is the first woman in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus heals. This isn't, Matthew doesn't arrange this just like happened stands, and it didn't all happen in one day, but he's got a theme going on. So what's her sickness? Well, she had a fever. And quite possibly, this could have been a very, very bad fever. Because sometimes we get a little fever, we can keep going. But she is in bed, in this sickness. And um, some speculate it could, could have been like malaria. Really bad fever. Jesus walks in the house. 
He doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. Nobody says, help me and have faith. Believe, you know, he just touches her hand. What does Peter's mother-in-law do? He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on them. Here's the deal. Sometimes when you have a fever and even when it gets better, you take your Advil or Tylenol or etc., you still kind of feel worn down. You don't feel like getting up, moving around, cleaning, you know, cleaning and preparing dinner and waiting on Jesus. But she did. That's how good Jesus' healing was. It's really cool. But here's another fun fact. If touching a leper was unclean, and if going to the home of a centurion would make a person ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, healing a woman was also taboo. To the religious leaders, Jesus is doing everything wrong. Don't touch that leper. Don't talk to the centurion. What are you doing in the home of a woman touching her? Well, that sounded wrong, but he healed her. He touched her hand. Peter's mother-in-law gets up and waits on them. And then in verse 16 and 17, we've got several demon-possessed, more sick, no names are given. But there's a fulfillment of prophecy I want to point out real briefly. In verse 17, it says this. This was to fulfill what, what was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So Matthew gives us three stories. Talks about the demon possessed and the sick. And it says, this proves it. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 4. But there's a deeper meaning here. Because while Matthew was writing about historical events and miracles and healings, he's also pointing to the cross. This is what was said to fulfill the prophecy. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. This, Matthew setting the stage, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Everywhere he goes is getting him a day closer to what he really came for. Jesus cares, here's the point, Jesus cares about the physical but he cares even more deeply about the spiritual. The infirmities and the diseases spoken of here are direct consequence of the fall. We've looked at this over the last few weeks, how there's moral evil and there's natural evil, and each of us are susceptible to that. We succumb to that. We're afflicted by that. But Jesus came to take up our infirmities and to bear our diseases. But the main one is our sin condition, not our skin condition. And this leads us then to the next two people that Jesus meet. These two are kind of clustered together. Not much is said here. The first person in Matthew chapter 8 verse 18 is the religious leader. He's a religious leader. He's a teacher of the law. He's educated. He's learned. He's scholarly. Even he's revered and looked to. It says, when a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He's making a bold proclamation. And maybe he was hasty like pudding. Maybe he was rash. Oh, I'll follow you, Jesus. How many times do we see that? Somebody says, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to get excited about my faith. I'm going to step up and serve. I want to lead and I'm going to get baptized in the river. And then Jesus explains, listen, time out. Before you, I just need you to know something. Foxes have dens. NIV, older edition says holes. Foxes have dens. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man 
has no place to lay his head. You say you want to follow me. Is it because you want to get up and speak in the temple courts and be on parade in the synagogue? Or do you really understand that what it means to follow Jesus? There's no guarantees. There's no creature comforts. If you want to spend your life building your dream house and pursuing your dreams and traveling the world to take great vacations and building a, a company of wealth, you really sure you want to follow me? Because the Son of Man has no place. Now, did Jesus have a bed? Scripture gives us some clues that yeah, Jesus stayed in different places, but he never owned an earthly home. This wasn't his kingdom. He knew he was passing through. He knew what God called him to do. And so teacher of the law, are you, you're very religious and you say you want to follow me, but have you really considered the cost? I think the guy was probably susceptible to creature comforts. Next guy. If that guy, first one was a religious leader, the second is a religious person. He even gets the title disciple, another disciple. What is a disciple? A follower, a learner, a student, a pupil. Somebody who sits down at the feet of Jesus to learn. So hopefully they get up and go and do and serve and be the people God wants them to be. He comes up and he says, Lord, uh, tap me on the shoulder. Lord, uh, first let me go and bury my father. And there's two explanations here, common ones. Number one is that his dad wasn't dead. Okay, so he's basically saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm willing to follow you, but my family's right here. Oh, my dad's there. And I need to stay when he dies. I'm going to be, I'll be, I'll be available then. That's explanation number one. Explanation number two is that his dad did die. But there was this year of what they would call the second burial. So the body would die, and, 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 and then you'd have to wait one year for the flesh to rot off the bones. Again, now we're back to dead men walking. And once the flesh rotted off the bones, then you could take the bones and gather them together and have a second burial in like an ossuary. That's probably an archaic term. Just pretend it's like a mausoleum. I stuff them in there. The second burial is basically saying, okay, God, Jesus... I'll follow you, but I got some things to do, and it's going to be on my time and my priorities. Let's just give me some time. First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, following Jesus requires a total commitment. You're not guaranteed creature comforts, no permanent dwelling. It might even be life on the move. If you're looking for comfort and social, financial, material stability, you might want to reconsider. Jesus gives no guarantees. Health, wealth, prosperity. That's not what this life is about. If you're following Jesus, it's trust in God, faith in Him, going where He wants you to go, doing what He wants you to do. Jesus is not selling some type of a self-help religion, but He's calling you to sacrifice, and to service, to love, and to total devotion. Your allegiance. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Your obedience, no strings attached. What can we learn from these five people that Jesus meets in Matthew chapter five, 8, verses 1 to 22? A lot of different things. 
But we're out of time, so I'm going to let you go home and think about it. Hopefully there's something that you can learn from each person. Whether it's the humility of the leper who had the audacity to come and kneel before Jesus when he knew he was unclean. He didn't make Jesus touch him, but Jesus did anyway. Or the centurion who didn't think about himself, though he was a man of power and authority in his own right. He recognized that Jesus is the man, the Lord, the authority. And he didn't ask for something for himself. Lord, give me what I want. He prayed for his servant, that his servant be healed. Some people thought maybe his servant sickness was like something of polio. Again, one of those things that it would take a miracle. Only God could cure. The mother-in-law didn't ask for a thing. Are you like her, though, that you're eager to serve? God, obviously, get up and do it automatically. God, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I'm ready to... Here I am. How can I help you? Are you the religious leader? Sorry, Jesus, I'm a little too, you know, I don't want to live like that. I, I, I don't want to be thrown out of my comfort zone. I like my house. I like my space. Or are you like the, uh, the other disciple? Hey, on my time, on my terms. In closing this morning, I'm going to bring us back to the persecuted church. Sometimes we would close with a song, but this morning I'm going to have us just close with a video. As we close, I want you to remember, there are people all around the world going through extreme persecution and suffering who have chosen to follow Jesus anyway. Not just despite that, but because of that. They're willing to live their lives fully for Jesus. We need to pray for them. But the, the biggest challenge for, for you this morning is, are you totally committed to Jesus? We learn a lot from the people who came to him, but we learn even more watching him. Let us go and be his mission to the world.
And when our children who are old enough, we're ready to them and their friends. Let the little children come to me.
Let's close in prayer. God, you did come to reach out to the leper and to the outcast and to the widow who is in need. You came to minister to the servant of the centurion. You healed, you worked miracles, you bore our infirmities and diseases, and you bore our sins on the cross. Your son did, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And we pray for peoples all over the world that they might know him. We pray, Lord, for those who are persecuted for their faith, who are suffering, not necessarily that it would stop, but that you would be glorified. No matter what, Lord, our prayer would be for their divine rescue and deliverance. The higher prayer is to say, thy will be done. Strengthen their faith and may they persevere and stand strong. And may we too prepare us, Lord, to face whatever is coming, whatever we might go through. And in all of it, may we always put our faith and trust in you. We thank you, God, for assuring us of your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming so much, everybody. God bless you. Hey, everybody. Monday nights, we usually have Bible study at our house up on Cox Road. But once a year, 